Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. When you do get stressed, you have this reversion back to sort of like primitive impulses and things that have like been ingrained, you know, over many years that have been, you know, your go-to stress response. They may have served you up until a point. They may not serve you any longer, but you've got this neural architecture, these pathways that are very strengthened um, and, and it's almost like a reaction, like you are doing this thing even before you realise you're doing it and then before it's too late. Um, it takes a huge amount of effort to change behaviour. Great to be back with you here, as always, as we close in on finishing up another big year in life and of humans of purpose. First off, a big thanks to our major sponsor, Neon Treehouse, who are still the best digital agency on the planet Earth, and a big shout out to Neon Treehouse, who celebrate their 10-year anniversary this week. They're doing a great job doing all our social media and marketing work and making us look far better than I ever could myself. This week, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Gemma King on the podcast. Gemma is the founder and director of BioPsych Analytics, an Australian-based company that has developed scientifically validated methodologies to reduce stress, burnout, and improve behavioral outcomes in high-performing individuals and organizations. Gemma is a high-performance expert and coach and has worked with the Australian Defence Force, Special Operations Command, the Centre for Australian Army Leadership, the Australian Olympic Swim Team, Australian Government Solicitors, and the Australian Institute of Sport. I met Gemma as we were both guest presenters at the McKinsey & Company Mission Delivery Program for the for-purpose sector throughout the year, and I was intrigued by her research, wisdom, and applied expertise around stress, motivation, and high performance. I also appreciate how she's using cutting-edge technology as part of her research. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Gemma as much as I did. Gemma, so good to see you again. You look fantastic. You look like you're in a wonderfully warm Brisbane location. Am I right? I am, yes. And lovely to see you too. We saw each other last, I think it was in Melbourne. Yeah, I think the last time we were able to catch up is actually just fleetingly on um, McKinsey organisational calls around mission delivery. So it's nice right. to be able to step outside yeah. that box and sort of have a bit more of an open chat. Um, I'm fascinated by so many things um, that you do and just sort of touching on um, seeing a bit of your work through the program and really keen to explore it. But as we do in Humans of Purpose, we'd be really keen to just hear a bit more about your your journey into the space and how you got to, to the field that you're in today, which is just universally fascinating. Yeah, well, um, super accidental. Uh, I ended up studying stress because... I was stressed, like, you know, all good academics. If you're not good at something, what do you do? <laughs> you do a PhD on it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I mean, I've always been incredibly interested in human behaviour, psychology, looking at how, you know, people show up in the world. And I've had a really um, intense fascination with biology and physiology. Um, and, you know, biology was my favourite subject at school. And as a kid, I used to dissect small animals um you know I loved worms I loved anything that was you know in fact I wanted to be a um forensic scientist when I was a little girl and then obviously I was talked out of it because it was it's a fairly gruesome pursuit but so I think this sort of um deep fascination and inquisitiveness has just followed me throughout my life and so I've just spent a hell of a lot of time at university studying the things that I I love. I've also studied a lot of things I knew I, I know now I don't want to study. I st- I started law at Sydney Uni, hated it. Oh, um, we're both failed lawyers. That's a superb uh, <laughs> commonality. I will never, ever identify as a lawyer. <laughs> no. Um, but, I, you know, I've studied medical microbiology, immunology, um, you know, physiology, chemistry, um, and I just found myself reading lots of books around psychology in my in my own time, I was actually trying to, go, I was planning on going and doing medicine, doing the GAMSAT. And then I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm reading this stuff anyway and I love it. I might as well pursue it. So then I did finish a psychology degree and then did a degree in 
business um, at honours at um, UQ Business School, and then I did my PhD. Um, and my PhD was basically smushing together physiology, psychology, and organisational behaviour. And so, yeah, and I was um, at the University of Queensland and I was studying stress and so I was using objective biological measures of stress, looking at cortisol, the stress hormone, and it's kind of really laborious and very expensive way of sort of uh, understanding people's stress state. And um, so I... That was a great dinner. So great. Wait, where'd you park the car? Oh, the one I just sold at Carvana. What? When did you do that? When you were still looking at the menu. I went on Carvana.com and all I had to do was enter the license plate or VIN, answer a few questions, and got a real offer in seconds. They picked up the car already? No, I parked around the corner. But they are picking it up tomorrow and paying me right on the spot. Oh, no wonder you picked up the check. Yeah, about that. Uh, thought we were going halvesies. Sell your car to Carvana. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get a real offer in seconds. was thinking how much I needed to do a field study. So I'd been doing research with students, um, looking at cyber ostracism and, you know, um, emotional intelligence and how emotional intelligence buffers stress. And then um, I was, I, for my PhD, I was told I had to do a field study. And so I was actually uh, planning to go into the banking um, sector and look at how they dealt with stress. And then someone from the Australian Army Research scheme came around and they said oh um you know we really like your research it's very objective um we love the preemptive approach that you take towards stress and emotional intelligence was you know gaining a lot of momentum and so I won a research um funding to go down to the Australian Special Forces which I had zero idea of what I was getting myself into and when I went down there I was quite surprised, actually. I had this preconceived notion around what Australian Special Forces soldiers would be like, and I was um, completely wrong. I was pretty, like, anti-war, anti-army. And so when I, I went down and met with this very, I suppose, specific, very cloistered, um, super male-dominated environment, I was, yeah, I was. it was a, a massive eye-opener, and I kind of gained a lot of respect for who these people were and what they did, their intelligence um, and bent for excellence. And so I spent several years researching down there and um, and then finally I was asked to come back and consult to that organisation because we did, you know, some really great research. We got really great results and we could see quite substantial improvements in behaviour, memory, recall under stress, um, shooting ability, a whole lot of things. We saw better um, endocrine profiles and we just had a lot of really amazing anecdotal feedback as well. And the guys just really appreciated and enjoyed um, the training that I gave them. It was like a biopsychosocial approach of looking at human performance. And so I went back and consulted to them for, for several years. And then from there, um, the head of, um, of Australian Swimming, John Bertrand, who is, um, you know, like, like an Australian national icon you know he won America's Cup he was friends with Rick Burr the head of Australian Army and he was looking for something to help the Australian swim team perform under pressure and so he said he saw my work down at the Special Forces and said can we get some of that please and so then um, myself and the head of the human performance wing of the Special Forces we went to consult to the swim team and we looked at helping them perform under pressure the men's the females the coaches the staff and everyone um, and then we also started to um, work with the Australian Institute of Sport they had a gold medal ready program which was designed to help all sorts of athletes perform under pressure in the lead up to Tokyo and then from there um, you know had management consultancy legal people um, bankers uh, uh, racing car drivers, bull riders. Um, bull riders. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, um, I currently help someone out um, and he's in the PBR. And, yeah, so it's huge range, huge diverse range of people that I deal with. And it's kind of just taken on this momentum of itself. None of it was planned. Yeah. And I think I was just, you know, it, it was this, this zeitgeist, this moment in time where stress and burnout is such a huge factor. And I just happened to be like, you know, knee deep 
in the middle of it. And then I, um, as I was saying before, you know, cortisol testing, saliva testing is very arduous, expensive and disgusting. And so I was really looking for a way to get these objective measures of stress. So then um, there was an American special forces guy who had gotten the WHOOP, which is a biometric capture device. And then he was speaking to the head of performance um, at Australian special forces. And then, so then that's how we got introduced to this device. And so now I've got a research relationship with WHOOP in which I do most of my research. So that's a, like a quick and dirty. That's, you know, that's right. excellent. That's really succinct, but also detailed in all the right areas. And um, yeah. I must confess, I wanted to get into this later, that I was a WHOOP strap wearer as well. And so when I saw you collaborating with WHOOP, um, it's really interesting how all these um, technologies and wearables that are out there now all have their own various um, methods and measures that are pretty robust, I think, around measuring stress levels. And they're not invasive. They're kind of skin-based. 24-7. Yeah, I mean, you know, you've got your aura rings, you've got your whoops, you've got your watch it, your smart watches now. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a validation paper that just came out recently that was saying, you know, like, I mean, they're not perfect, but they're better yeah. than nothing. Absolutely, um, absolutely. Yeah. And I think I think for, for your regular citizen to be able to have that kind of like access to health information and maybe some way of using it to advantage is a huge leap forward, really. Yeah. Well, this is what I wanted to ask you. So, um, of course, your listeners probably know that you've just experienced the most monumental cataclysmic shift in your life by having a child. Mm. And have you, are, are you still wearing biometric capture devices? Like have, yeah. what have you seen in your data? So, yeah, so a couple of things to say about that. Um, I stopped wearing the Whoop a little while ago because with my kind of exercise regime and just sleep and stuff, what I started to realise is that I am quite aware of how well I've slept um, just through myself and I also don't want to be reminded when I've had a particularly bad night's sleep. And I yeah. think when you when you've just had a kid, you really don't want to be told how much you've slept or how bad your oh, recovery yeah. is. So <laughs> I was just like, like for me, you know, that survival mode. You've got a couple of kids, so teenagers now. But you know, for me, it was like, how do I survive the day, and can I get to gym to preserve my mental health and well being? And um, <laughs> having too much data would probably have been um, detrimental to that. Yeah. But um, so what have you found, like in terms of you know your personal identity? Because I know for men, it's total like, shit. Women total talk shit. about women all the time but I think this is like a really not well discussed phenomenon that men go through like oh, you have all these biochemical changes it's crazy change like mm-hmm. I I say to people I've said this on a podcast before that um I feel like a different person legitimately like my yeah. my mental wiring has completely changed and um and it does mm. yeah and I so much to say that I don't think I knew who I really was until I had my boy and um yeah. You know, it's a, it's a lovely feeling, but it's also very disorienting. Um, and yeah, I guess there is a lot of hormonal change. There's a lot of change to stress. What I will say is that with the challenge of full-time work and doing a bunch of other things, the podcast and having Marlo, and I only took a week off um, when Marlo wow. was born because just I was new, new in my job. Um, so all of that has made it all the more important for me to focus on things like uh, making sure I get into my sauna every day for about half an hour, 40 minutes, got an infrared at home, um, and also make sure that I get to body fit, uh, which is high-intensity interval training, um, at least four times a week. And the, the wow. difference um, that I feel as a result of doing those things just gets me well ahead of any like overwhelming stress. It's a huge difference. See, that's how, I, I love how you've realised that this is like sort of um, a, a non-negotiable because I think mm. what a lot of people do is they, when they get stressed, it's one of the first things that falls off is their own personal exercise. But particularly for men, you know, you get a massive drop in testosterone, yeah. um, you know, a vasopressin increase in oxytocin and, um, and you, you actually do have changes in your neural architecture which are super fascinating. Like and like your um, default mode network. So this is your thinking about thinking of so where your metacognition happens. You seem yep. to see there's an activation in that. And so I've, I've heard that people can either go one way where they like in deeply, deeply love and feel enriched and nourished where there's other men that feel ostracized, rejected, you know, their partner's not accessible anymore. They feel a third wheel, the baby doesn't need them and they really struggle. 
Um, yeah. I think, um, Jim, what I'll say is that, like, with our situation, um, Louise breastfed for a month and then we shifted to formula. So the shift the shift to formula feeding has meant that I'm more of an equal participant in care and also yeah. we're very 50-50. So I do, um, like, a couple of days of drop-offs and pick-ups from daycare. Um, yeah. We evenly split everything with the bub. And it's been really rewarding for me and I feel very involved as a result of that. But definitely, yes, there are some feelings that you get as a male about being like a bit of a passenger or a kind of, um, to use software talk, like a non, non-player non character um, in the whole process. You're just like this observer. But certainly yeah. there are things that you can do to make that a bit more um, like non-prevalent or not, not an issue for the relationship. Um, yeah. I think it's interesting what you said, something about emotions. Um, like unless you've had kids, you really haven't uh, experienced the full, you know, d- dimensional range of emotions and like you don't really know yourself. And, and I I don't know if this is a wives' tale, but there's some African tribe, there's always some African tribe, mm-hmm. but they actually don't let people become, um, sit in elder positions, leadership positions, unless they've had kids because I think unless you've been tortured in ways that kids can torture you, you actually don't haven't really... <laughs> that's well said that's that's some real torture that's worse than waterboarding some of it i mean it it could be for a lot lot. but um look it's been a tremendous experience and one thing i want to come back to um is this is really kind of like going back to basics a little bit but why do humans um from an evolutionary perspective um feel stress what is its utility in our lives oh it's it's literally the mechanism that's kept us alive it's really a physiological response to project humans away from danger or towards food safety um, or or procreation. It's literally like if you look at the human stress response system in its simplest form, it's just literally designed to motor you. And um, and then with the advent of the uh, progression of the um, the size of of the human brain, prefrontal cortex, and then there's been all these overlays that have happened, but really at its at its bottom level, it's just a, a survival thing. And you know, this is why I talk a lot about um, in the evolutionary perspective of stress and people. And I, I always go back to you know what it would have been like for Homo sapiens when we first stood up two hundred fifty thousand years ago and became you know more human and people go who cares about what happened back then like honestly like surely we've evolved since then and I go no if you look if you put um human evolution on a 12-hour clock like you know for the better part of a you know 11 hours and 50 something minutes we've we've acted in a way that's been advantageous for our environment which is that fight or flight and then, you know, you look at human society, all the micro stresses, the accumulative stresses, the social stress, all of these things that, that kick off our stress response system, it's just not used to it. Mm. And this is literally just four seconds on the evolutionary clock. So when you think about that, that's really not sufficient amount of time for our neural architecture, our reactions, um, you know, all of this biochemistry to catch up to be adapted to the types of modern stress that we have to deal with. And so this is where we get this disconnect. This is why we've got this epidemic of stress and burnout because this system is not designed to be on like it is with us. And I suppose um, it's not helped by the kind of prevalence of screens and being contactable 24 hours a day, mobile phones. Like, you know, you, you can imagine in the savannah if you were hunting, you were just hunting. Yeah. Um, and that was the only thing to focus on, and maybe your default mode network and your other um, stresses would have would have been there, but it, it would have just been like you're concentrating on doing one thing, a clear task without distraction. Yeah, I mean, like you were, you we we had downtime. Like there'd be hours and hours you'd be sitting there tending a fire, whittling a stick, looking off into the distance, you know, weaving whatever. Um, but now, like, and and because of our dopamine system. Um, we actually can't help ourselves. We are just attracted to shiny, um, you know, lights, noises. Uh, our brain will attend to stimuli even if we don't want it to. And so and I think people who run social media companies know this. Anything with a ding, a red colour, a light, mm. it will just draw our attention. And it was really funny. Um, I've been up at our, we've got a, a farm, 
small farm not far from Brisbane. And I love going up there and just getting dirty and exhausted, digging holes, chopping wood, um, and just getting physically exhausted because my my job is so um, uh, cerebral, it's so cognitively demanding that I just need to get out and do physical labour. And I was thinking, like, I got to the point at the end of every day, like, totally physically exhausted. And normally it takes me, you know, an hour to get to sleep because I think about this. I get excited about stuff. I'm like, my brain's going. And then, like, you just fall into a swag, just totally exhausted. And I'm like, you know what? Depression is a function of energy misutilization. Like back in the day, we we, we literally did not have the the neural um, space. We didn't have the bandwidth to be ruminating about stuff because mm. we were just so tired. Yep. And so I actually think that this you know huge prevalence of depression and anxiety is just the fact that our big human brains are so metabolically sucking they just they, they're there and so they'll want to be used and if you've got energy left and you've got a big brain this thing will this thing will go and then what is what do human brains typically do they tend to negative they future project you know possibilities and this is not good for our our um, mental health well, I you know, think it's also to- like, you know, like living in the moment, um, the savannah is entirely different like that, um, you know, the need to do things at a certain time, whereas, you know, there's a famous quote that um, depression is living in the past, anxiety is living in the future. Yeah. So what, worrying about past events and, you know, ruminating about potential future events may not have been as possible at the time because people were so wrapped up in what they were doing. And, yeah. I kind of, you know, as somebody who's lived with depression and experienced it um, time and time again, you know, I, I do keep up with the research and I do find it really interesting, um, some of that talk about how um, high-intensity or regular exercise and physical activity um, is almost as effective as antidepressants at yeah. combating depression. Really interesting stuff. Oh, of course. I, um, I, I don't know if you've heard of that um the sedentary depression hypothesis where in where you think about humans uh, in the better part of our history were never ever sedentary in fact mm. it, we were always doing something and if but if we were still it, it typically meant that we were sick mm-hmm. and so what does your body do when it's sick it'll make you withdraw so you don't infect the clan it'll make you sleep so because sleep is the best way to heal and what and those two things withdrawal and, and sleepiness is is um, two symptoms that mimic depression. And so people, you know, are, are saying like, is it depression or is it just a function of um, not enough movement, not enough? Yeah. Yeah. It's, oh, look, it's, it's just a fascinating space and I think there's so much to learn. One, one thing I'm curious about is with what we know about stress, is there an optimal level of stress? I mean, we talk, I've heard about this performance uh, stress, J-curve or whatnot. Is there yeah. a ra- range that we should try and be in to have the right amount of stress to perform at a really high level? Yeah, this is a really interesting question and there's no straight answer like with anything human. It's complicated. So there was this old model, the, the Yerke-Dobson curve, where you've got stress on one axis and then performance on the other. So I think um, the y-axis is, is performance and the x is, is stress. And you think that there's like a, a, a upside-down U, and in the middle is the optimal performance location. And so what's really interesting is that um, the amount of stress in the system and the, and the, the correlated performance is, is actually predicated on whether or not you're an uh, introvert or extrovert. So if you think about um, introverts, they uh, like to withdraw and not have too much stimuli because they already have a certain like high level of internal arousal already, like things kind of like activate them. When you say arouse, I've got to like say it, it just means activation, like an energetic activation. Yeah, yeah. If you say it in front of a, a group of thirsty uni students, they go, <laughs> like, no, like activation. <laughs> I hope our audience is mature enough to handle it. Yeah. Um, so um, so for you, uh, when I was teaching at uni and I was saying, okay, before your exams, if you want to get to that, your, your brain into the right place to optimal performance, it's work out whether you're introverted or extroverted, people you typically know. And if you're an introvert, before the exam, try and remove yourself from like st- Stimuli, try not to have too much um, you know, caffeine or stimulants of coke and um and then you know maybe 
be mindful, meditate, listen to calm music. And then so that'll bring you back down the curve into that optimal spot where if you're an extrovert, um, they typically have high levels of internal arousal. Uh, sorry, they have lower levels of internal arousal and they actually need external um, stimulus to get themselves up. And so like, you know, pump up music, have some caffeine, talk, chat, you know, get activated. But um, for both introverted and extroverted, laughing before uh, an important event is um, the best way to get yourself up there. But that's a really sort of simplistic model. And when you look at the brain, it's incredibly complex. And there's great work by Lisa uh, Barrett-Feldman, and she talks about um, the brain is pretty much a prediction modelling machine. And so your brain is always um, weighing up two things. Is this dangerous and how much does this cost, right? And so um, your brain is always just trying to keep you alive. It doesn't know you're in a sophisticated modern environment with lots of resources. It still has the mechanisms to think that you're in a resource-scarce environment and things are dangerous. And so it'll always say, okay, what is this situation I am, am I in? Um, and it'll go back into the memory banks and it'll like check against that. Have I seen this before? What was my last um, experience with this environment? And I'm talking about light, sound, smells, your processing um, perceptions of the environment. And then it'll work out what's your resource availability now? That's blood glucose, hydration, uh, how tired you are. Um, then, it'll, then it'll be overlaid by your cultural context. What does your society think about this situation? It's overlaid by your parental in, um, modeling. What would your parents do? And then this is a very sophisticated algorithm that goes, duh, 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 and then you'll have a response. And it's like very, very quick. And so when you talk about like what is optimal for someone, it's predicated on so many factors, interuterine environment, whether or not your mother was stressed or not, how many resources she had, what kind of genetics do you have, um, what are your goals, what are your, um, you know, where are you physically right now? And then that's, you know, it's a long and hard answer, but only no, that's, that. that's really well, that's really well explained. I suppose there's a whole range of factors and we we can't be too simplistic to just talk about the performance anxiety yeah. joke here. We've got to go a bit deeper. What, mm -hmm. One thing I was curious about, it, having worked across a range of settings, so you talked about the army, uh, bankers, swimmers, uh, people in the commercial world, um, in executives performing at a high level, athletes performing and teams performing at a very high level. How different are the sort of things to consider when trying to motivate good performance and moderate stress? Are they entirely different models, frameworks and approaches? Do they draw from similar principles? Do you do yeah. different things? Yeah, excellent question. And people people say to me like, well, that's bizarre that you can work with such a huge range of people. And, you know, the unifying thread with my work is that everybody's got a stress response system and it's all based on, you know, similar human behaviour principles. And once you understand this and know why your body works the way it does and and how and and can kind of predict what it does under stress. Um, and I often teach stress inoculation strategies to find this out if you don't know, you you can kind of really utilize the stress energy, transmute it into something that can be performance enhancing. And so depending on the situation and what you want your stress response to do to activate and use it or, or you want to deactivate it and um, subdue it, depending on your task at hand, these are the lessons that I teach. So um, say I'm going into, um, you know, banking and, and trading where you've got to be calm, you've got to have your, uh, like really high level of cognitive ability. You've got to have great situational awareness. You need to, you can't be panicky. You can't be reactive. So I'll, I'll train a different stress strategy to that compared to like a special forces guy who's, you know, jumping out of a plane and is about to assault onto a village, something like that. Like that's, that's, that's very different. Also they need their cognitive capacity as well. Um, or a swimmer where you probably know you've got 52 seconds to get from one end of the pool to the other. And you, you're better off not having your mind involved in that, in that situation. You're better off engaging, you know, muscle memory or, um, you know, unconscious competence. So 
it's knowing all the, the nuances of the different stages of stress. We talk about anticipatory stress, the lead up, going back, you know, several weeks up into an event, um, you know, the hour before an event, the 10 minutes before an event, you know, the, the two minutes before an event, the second before an event, the event, the post-event, um, and then how you rationalise how you performed. Um, and then misfire protocols, um, you know, failure protocols, dealing with failure scars. So it's a huge body of work, very complex and very nuanced. And so could we say that um, a lot of it would start with uh, probing and trying to understand self as well because you sort of you yeah. talked about all the, the prisms and layers and how somebody's um, stress response and everything might be different depending on their range of characteristics informing that. So would the way that you work with people sort of to be thinking about, you know, where are they on the introversion, extroversion scale? How, how was their upbringing? Is, is there a whole lot of that work of investigation to figure out what makes them tick before you can kind of get to those answers? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, like when we do the McKinsey Executive Leadership Programs, this is the model. I always say you can't hope to lead others unless you can lead yourself. And that means leading your physiology because, I know, we've all sat through all these, you know, lessons, classes, read books, podcasts about these high order concepts around how we should operate within the world and, you know, organisational behaviour and, um, you know, high conscious um, theories. They all go out the window the minute your stress response system kicks in and your brain goes into that mental blanking, what I call amygdala hijack. We've all experienced that. Oh, yeah. You know what you got to do. You can see something coming and then blank. And you're like, oh my God, like just at the worst moment, your brain betrays you. And you're like, just when you need to sound smart or do something, you're like, God oh, damn it, what happened? And you just look, you're just like a, you know, a fish out of water going. <laughs> um, so I talk a lot about, about that. So, uh, you know, unless you get that physiological, very primal, binary physiological response under control, uh, it's very hard for you to do anything higher ordered or anything didactic team orientated or even organizationally orientated so yeah and so depending on um the level of um intensity of my engagement like some people I sit down one-on-one -on -one and I will like like just extract everything out of their brain like just ask probe ask some questions um until we get sort of a, a blueprint of the operating system um or I can do it, you know, um, explain these, the different stress types, um, you know, try to self-identify if we're in bigger groups. Um, yeah, so it, it just really depends on, on, on how deep people want to go. But I think once people do realise that this is a thing and this is the framework and these are the types of stress responses and, you know, we see people will, do also, uh, you know, get physio physiologically stressed. They'll get, um, we call them somaticizers. So they're people who are more likely to clench their jaw, um, get sick, get stomach aches and manifest stress physically. We've got people who are more emotionally um, orientated. So if they get stressed, they'll cry, they'll shout, they'll weep or whatever. Or then we'll get people who are more cognitively affected. They get fuzzy brain, they, um, you know, get forgetful, get, um, you know, dis disorientated. And so it's about this self-identification of what is your first instant sign of stress. So when you see that thing, you can start some engagement protocols to, like, stop yourself from going too far off kilter. Because once you get into that stress response, you've got, you know, cortisol takes 30 minutes to get out of your system. And then if you keep getting stressed, you know, and stress and stress, you know, you end up with burnout, like, you know, eight weeks of high intensity stress, something physiological is going to go. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, it's knowing, knowing thyself. Knowing thyself, absolutely important precept. And, and once one knows thyself, um, what, like why is behaviour change so difficult in your experience? And, I mean, that's that's perhaps me sort of putting it to you that behaviour change really is very difficult. Maybe oh, it you've got is. a different experience. But just curious about once, you know, you've worked with so many high performers, once people are, are more aware of themselves, um, I guess the hard thing is getting them to actually change their behaviours. And just curious about your insights on why that's complicated uh, as humans. Yeah, uh, because, you know, for many reasons, and this is really interesting, this is something I grapple with all the time, even with myself, right? I do things I, I know I shouldn't do, but I do it anyway. 
Um, I think because when when you do get stressed, you have this reversion back to sort of like primitive impulses and things that have like been ingrained, you know, over many years that have been, you know, your go-to stress response. They may have served you up until a point. They may not serve you any longer, but you've got this neural architecture, these pathways that are very strengthened um, and, and it's almost like a reaction, like you are doing this thing even before you realise you're doing it and then before it's too late. Um, it takes a huge amount of effort to change behaviour. And I think you've got to get to the point where you're sick of being sick of being sick of yourself. So that's three, only, three levels of um, frustration, yeah. really. <laughs> yeah. Like you're so over the, the consequences of that behaviour. And I think unless the consequences are worse, then the, the the thing is bad. It's hard for you to use the energy to get engaged in behavioural change. Um, but you can do it, and if you if you can see the consequent the positive consequences, and I always say, all right. So if you want, if you say something you don't want to do, like I don't know, smoking, right? Not, well, I don't can, can we use my example because I wanted to walk you through this one. Um, just just say I I do have a bad habit of having to put it on record, um, and that's that. Whether I'm stressed or not, I find it very comforting once Marlo's in bed and we're winding down to have a packet of chocolate. I've done this for years. I <laughs> have a great difficulty in not enjoying chocolate at night. It's one of yeah. the things that is just associated with my relaxation and my de-stressing. I, I think it's probably emotional eating in some way. Um, yep. But, I mean, I found that behaviour so difficult to shift. And I just wonder, is that something that's, that has to do with my kind of primitive coping mechanism, my yep. dinosaur brain, my lizard brain? Is it an adaptive response that was nurtured through childhood that I've just clung on to? I always wonder, Bingo, how would yeah. I, yeah, how would I go, how do I understand that and how do I go about changing that? Yeah, so there's many things that could be uh, propagating your um, chocolate addiction. So there's the chocolate itself, like so there's caffeine, there's sugar, it, it hits your dopamine. Um, and, and it's particularly in hormone, hormonal fluctuations and, and, and for women particularly um, when they get pre-menstrual, pre, um, they, they often crave chocolate. I was just reading a paper about this before. Um, so there's that, there's that um, addictive nature of the, of the chocolate itself. There is the operant conditioning that somehow um, you had a feeling of distress, someone gave you chocolate, and then that diminished your feelings of distress. So you get this reward from having chocolate, an emotional reward. Um, it's also a, probably a distractor um, from thoughts. It's also something, um, it's like revenge pre-bedtime eating where I've been doing everything for everyone else and this is my little my yeah. little, my little thing. That seems and, so right. Yeah. And then again, there is the gut biome aspect. So you're feeding um, your gut biome with sugar. And so this, what this does, it proliferates a certain um, species of gut biome. And we know that when you're eating late at night and you go to bed, you've got this kind of like auto brew effect where you've got like sugar in your stomach and they live on sugar and, they, and your gut biome will proliferate. And we know that gut biome sends out bioidentical molecules that um, mimic um, the hunger hormones so you get this false hunger and so you think you want more chocolate um, and so then you eat more chocolate so there's like many reasons and so what what you should never do with behavioral change is like don't eat the chocolate don't eat the chocolate because what is your brain here chocolate 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 and we've got this forbidden fruit phenomenon in our heads like that which we are not allowed to do we want to do and so I always say um, like Never give up smoking, take up running. Never give up chocolate, take up eating hot ginger tea or drinking hot ginger tea. You, you can never push something away. You need to go towards something. So you need to find a um, an activity. Like a healthy substitute of some kind. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's often better to, like, um, do something that actually makes it difficult to eat chocolate. So... Um, not having it sitting in the cupboard might be a good idea. Not to have like ready supply. Yeah. Oh, like put your put your um, chocolate in the freezer down the back. Oh, very good. 
good. And yeah, and so by the time, like, I hate really hard chocolate. I don't know, some people like it, but like, nah, it's it. so freezing that by the time that you go, oh, I've got to get out, and then I have to make it thaw. So your adult rational <laughs> brain has time to kick in. It's really quite funny how you have to pull your rational brain to just break a habit. But um, yeah. like, yeah, and so this brings me to my other sort of question about behavior change. Like, are you of the sort of view that in order to change behaviors and form better habits that you need to work on um, values and beliefs as antecedents or to, to like just say just say I've got some maladaptive behaviors do I mm -hmm. need to revisit my values in order to effectively change those behaviors there's a lot of conjecture about this about whether it's helpful or not I think it is like so when I have a sort of a reactive response and I just think oh that's just the way I am and I go oh no actually that's that's when I was a kid that happened and that's made me like that I find it incredibly helpful to understand the antecedent behavior of where that came from so then when when the impulse comes you can observe it and you go that's not really me anymore or or that that's not who I want to be and whether or not it works up but it, what it does it creates a gap between impulse and, and um, response and you can um slowly see it where some people I don't know it doesn't help them you've got to like humans are so complex you've got to work out that what works for you and what doesn't work for you where I, I think that's really helpful to to understand the why yeah I think for me what's been helpful is um like I'm somebody who likes to know what their values are and likes to know that they're behaving in accordance with them so yeah. if I if I can see that I'm not being the person that my values tell me that I want to be, then I need to change some of those behaviours. And, and that for well, me is like kind of quite, there's, there's like that, that self-honesty um, or like, you know, um, to not act in accordance with one's values, um, it's not virtuous, so maybe I need to kind of change. Well, well the, no, my next question is like, are they really your values? Because you keep not acting in accordance with them. Like people bullshit to themselves and say, you know, when you've asked someone, what are your values? Oh, integrity, honesty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you go, like, is that is that really true? Like, <laughs> so true. when I do when I do values work, <laughs> we do this thing. We do we backdoor it, and I like because I'm often I work with um you know like athletes or like you know soldiers or or people who like don't really talk about things like values. It's yeah. so like ephemeral and fluffy as I do. Yeah. Um. So I go, okay, tell me three things that really piss you off on a regular basis like yeah. your mom or your your partner and it'll be like I, I I've got misophonia I hate the sound of people chewing or I hate people cutting me off that's not mine but I'm just saying for instance I've got that or I um you know like when I when I want to go to sleep I want to be able to go to sleep and if anything stops me I get pissed off and so then you go okay when someone cuts you off in, in traffic what are those is that person being disrespectful okay what's the opposite of disrespectful respectful well that's probably your value because if it wasn't you wouldn't get regularly pissed off about it oh, i'm I, so happy you said that Gemma. I, I must say like i i eternally have had this conflict around do values matter as much as behaviors or what is like what is the value of understanding people's values and my kind of conclusion is very mixed because I think there is a way to discover your own values and to act in accordance with them, but behaviour is far more important. And I also think that um, the best way to understand what your values are are through your behaviours and trying to understand what you um, are very uncomfortable with and don't want to tolerate. Yeah. Um, and it's like my same theory that um, if you really want to develop a good relationship with someone, it's almost easier to figure out what you both in common don't like and then work yeah. backwards. What does yeah. that say about what you have in common, you know? Yeah. I live my life by guiding principles rather than, like, extreme values. Yeah. I just find that, you know, like my 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 values is, you know, um, I love inquisitiveness, innovation, but also, like, harmony and um, and so if I'm going to do something that creates disharmony, like, yeah, I, yeah, I won't do it. Um, but I'm all about, like, fun, exciting, new. Yeah, that's awesome. And so, like, I mean, principles is an area that I've become increasingly interested in over and above um, values and beliefs. What would be some of your key principles of, of operating sort of, sort of in terms of how you think about what projects you'll take on, how you want to live day to day, how you want to turn up? 
Um, I, I have trouble doing things that don't fascinate me and which is probably a problem because I get kind of bored. And I love front-end new stuff, finding out. I'm super inquisitive. Like I like looking for the frontiers of, of new thought, tech, ways of thinking, ways of being better. Um, one of my big values is, is um, or guiding principles is to work out how to help people be better. It sounds really like, I don't know, cliche, but I, I genuinely love finding something out and go, hey, this is like a new way of, of like alleviating stress or or being better. Um, I don't like telling people what to do. So I suppose even though I teach leadership and I, I, I lecture and I do lots of um, leadership stuff, personally, I'm, I'm very much about um, being self-determined and that people should um, be on that journey on their own. And if they want to come along with me, great. And if they don't, they'll just fall away. But I'm not about, you should be, you should do this to be on my team or you should not do this. I, I, I like kind of leave that up to people. Um, so you're not going to tell people what to do prescriptively um, as, no. as a way of being? I don't like, I don't like um, having personal responsibility for other people and some people love that and want to do that where I don't I'm like come on in this journey next to me um, I'm very egalitarian super egalitarian I'm not about um, positioning at all so I've got PhDs that I look after I'm very very egalitarian with them I, I don't um, have the uh, power distance in my life at all even with my kids my partner no I don't like power distance um yeah and so let's talk a bit about some of your new research that you're excited about. Um, yeah. Really keen to hear what you're working on now and what's really taking your your interest and fascination. Yeah, so um, I've been so I, I've been working with PhDs. So one of them um, is Nadia Fox, and she. I don't know if you've seen any of the other podcasts, but you know we've we did this uh, study with McKinsey. At their executive leadership program, we put work devices on a whole lot of leaders. And what we're looking at is the impact of stress and sleep um, on mental performance. So we tracked them over, you know, several months. Um, we had them, you know, 24-7 um, getting monitored. We got them to fill out um, surveys and we sent them these executive functional mental performance tests. And we're looking at whether or not. Um, stress and sleep deprivation impacted their ability. And what we found that when people, when leaders had 45 minutes of sleep deprivation, they were 10% more stupid the next day. So when you're talking about people who are in, you know, positions of, of uh, you know, high intensity, no fail, competitive environments, that's a, that's a significant drop in IQ points. But what we also found that if people had an extra 30 minutes of deep, slow wave sleep, their, their um, mental performance increased by 10%. And another thing that we worked with um, on this was with Amy Edmondson. So you, do you know who she is? She's um, the person who coined the term psychological safety. She's a professor out of Harvard. And so what we did, we got the leaders and we got them to identify some of their subordinates and we asked the subordinates, um, how much psychological safety did you experience in the last interaction with your boss? And then we went back and retrospectively looked at the boss's sleep and stress status um, at the time of their subordinates reporting. Yeah, and we found that those leaders who were sleep deprived and stressed had lower levels of psychological safety in their team, which is interesting because some of these um interactions with the boss and their subordinates were online and um and so we're like fascinated there's got to be some kind of transmission that the boss is acting in a certain way that made their subordinates feel like there's less trust because like psychological safety is basically group trust and the reason why psychological safety is so important um it's because that I don't know if you've heard of Google. They did this thing called Project Aristotle where they looked at mm -hmm. what were the factors that um, constituted a high-performing team and they found that um, psychological safety was one of the most important constructs and pretty much the, the construct under which all other constructs nested. So if you didn't have 
psychological safety, you're pretty much your team was cactus. And so, um, yeah, so we, well, we found that that this is the first time ever that physiological data has been linked to um, so, you know, this kind of psychological safety data. And even Amy Edmondson said to me when I first met her and told her of my of my plan, she goes, well, that's a bit um, ambitious, she said. <laughs> so she was super surprised we got a result. So that's that's really exciting. I'm also and what, helping- what kind of devices did you use for that, Gemma? The whip. Yeah, the whip, whip. device. Yeah. And did you find that to be like a, a good, like the best sort of in-show that's able to give you those metrics around, I guess you'd be looking at recovery, sleep, stress, all that kind of stuff? Yeah. We, yeah. I, um, we found the whip's been best. I really love the fact it doesn't have a face on it, so it doesn't dingle in your face and distract you. Because I think we've got to be really, really mindful of protecting our, um, you know, our mental energy. And so I like it that you, if you want to look at your data, it's on on the app. We've found it to be quite reliable. Um, you know, the, the actually the hardware, um, the you know, there's been some independent validation studies, and they, it, you know, it does really well. Um, in comparison to the competitors on the market. And so we've just had this relationship. I've been working with Whoop since about 2017. And so, you know, I know the data, I know the platform, I know the people there. And so I've just found it to be, you know, most advantageous biometric capture device for, for my purposes. And um, and so actually I'm helping um, a British commando PhD who um, who's wanting to replicate my PhD. And we're actually looking at, um, or he's looking at, and I'm helping him look at the impact of stress and mental blanking under high pressure environments. So, for instance, you know they're going to be, um, you know, rappelling off a off cliffs or or going into that helicopter rollover, and we're looking at their ability to um, hold a like a, a digit in their mind when they get stressed, and so there'll be a a, a treatment condition where we'll teach them my method of stress reduction in the moment. The other control group won't be taught it and they'll be put through a whole lot of stress serials and we'll see whether or not this methodology helps them keep their brain online and remember um, digits under high high stress. So that's pretty exciting. Um, yeah, I've got, I mean, there's always got lots of stuff on the hop. Um, I've got a big project with Coca-Cola at the moment and we're looking at fatigue and looking at um, you know, sleep interventions and if we can increase productivity and reduce workplace incidents. And I'm also looking at, you know, look, um, you know, shift work. I'm going to look at some pilots on if we can, uh, you know, ascertain what is the, mo- the most optimal shift patterns for blue-collar workers, which I think is really important. This hasn't really been looked at using biometric capture devices um, potentially looking at putting on these glasses that actually change um, colour according to what time of their shift they are. So by the time they get home, they can sort of go, go to bed. Or if they're in the middle of the night and they have to work, they, it has blue light in their eyes, which activates their arousal. So that's pretty exciting. And I've also, um, at the moment, just actually tomorrow, I'm talking to some people in Hollywood about um, doing some psychophysiological programs on on um, some of the streaming um, stations. So, oh wow! I can't say what it is yet, and um, but that's that's kind of really exciting. So, it's gonna bring in this oh, time. It's, it's such really. a range, it's such a range of awesome things you're working on. Look, it'd be remiss of me not to ask you, given all the work that you do, a bit about your routines in the morning and the evening. Um, I, I'm guessing, I'm not sure, but first of all, like you know, for me. Like, well, I guess for you being across all the sort of leading research in sort of stress management and performance and everything, what does your morning routine look like and what does your evening routine look like and what are sort of your non-negotiables to get in during the day to make sure that you're at your best? Yeah, so it's a good question. So I, because I know about the stress response and everything and how to manage it, I actually take on way too much. So I probably end <laughs> like on the on the higher stress level, but I, I don't. Um, I, I really know how to manage stress. I push myself and I'm at the edge a lot, but I know when to pull back and I know I know exactly what to do. So my morning routine is I make sure my room's super dark 
um, I'm really strict about having like the curtains closed, no light coming in. I get up really early. I wake up very early. Um, maybe this is a function of having worked with the military. It was never like that before. I wake up, um, you know, I try to stop and not get on my phone straight away, but because I work um, with people in the US, I've often got messages um, that have come in overnight. So I try to sit there for a few moments and go, why Why is my life so awesome? So like sort of a bit of gratitude. Then I'll reach my phone and and then because when you reach the, for your phone too early, it kicks off your um, cortisol response. Your cortisol response is supposed to kick off 30 minutes post-waking where if you get on your phone straight away, it kicks it off earlier and then we'll just dysregulate um, your cortisol response for the rest of the day. So I try not to do that, but I do because I'm really naughty about that. Um, what time I, do you wake up just by the way? Uh, like 5.30. Okay. So yeah. we're, not, we're not talking like ridiculous, ridiculous. We're just talking about, you know, earlier than the usual. Yeah. I saw, sometimes it's 4.30, but it's not because I want to. I just wake up. Yeah. But yeah, I'm all, like I'm awake at five thirty, and I would love to sleep in, and I try to, but I just cannot. Yeah, um, I'm I exactly wake up, the same. Yeah, maybe it's having kids as well. Um, I religiously will. My partner, I will go and walk to the cafe. We're walking past Green, past a creek, and this is kind of really important to you know just set the day, have coffee. It's kind of ritual. Walk back, and then I'm on. Like I'm just on my laptop or I, I travel or I'm doing millions of different things. So I, I'm i a popcorn thinker. I don't, I have things going all the time. I don't do one thing at once. Um, so I, one thing I do is I eat really well. Um, I haven't eaten gluten for 22 years. I'm actually allergic to it. Um, I sometimes eat breakfast in the morning, but I'm really careful about what I eat because um, I've done gut biome research, so I understand the impact. So I try to avoid any carbohydrates, heavy or simple sugars or carbohydrates in the morning because I find if I do eat sugar or carbohydrates in the morning, I'm starving by 10 mm. and I hate that feeling. So if I do eat in the morning, it'll be like tomato on gluten-free whole grain toast and a soy latte. And then um, I snack on nuts throughout the day, pecans or something for the um, megas and the protein. Um, no gluten, rarely have sugar, rarely have um, anything packaged. Um, my sugar I keep for red wine, <laughs> so I will drink probably <laughs> drink red wine maybe one or two glasses four nights a week. Good, heavy. That's well within the uh, cardiology guidelines. It's, it's okay, my wife tells me. Oh, but like, honestly, my whoop screams at me every morning. I know, like, yeah, I, I, and so I know what alcohols I can drink, like um, margaritas are good, um, red wine and rum, but that's it, but just on ice. And so I've worked out what alcohol ruins me or what doesn't. Um, I try, I'm trying to avoid heavy meat at night because it does really um, ruin your recovery because your body will prioritise digestion over um, deep, slow way slate. They're yeah. both parasympathetic actions. I avoid MSG. It kills me, monosodium glutamate. So it's a neurotransmitter. So yeah. monosodium glutamate is stuff that makes food taste delicious. I really avoid that. If I if I have that, I know um, I'm going to have a terrible nightmare sleep and I wake up tired and thirsty. Um, yeah, so I eat really clean. And the worst thing I do is drink alcohol. Um, and... Yeah, so that so that's it. But what I, about I'm, bedtime? What time do you get to bed, and how do, how do you play that out? Yeah, so in the in the evening, I try to sunset gaze, reduce the lighting, like don't have any like overhead lights, not nothing too stimulating. Uh, some, uh, but I'm often I'm I'm working on my laptop. I um, I've been trialing CBD oil, so we were um, looking at a research project for that. Um, so occasionally, I'll I'll, I'll take that. Um, which I find is really good. Anything with THC to sends me, I cannot stand. It makes mm. me feel horrible. Um, so I have got a, a little red light in my room, um, which I turn on before bed, so no overhead lights. I'm sure the neighbours are like, what is she running, a sexy bald fellow <laughs> next door? Maybe she's know, a photographer, who knows? There's <laughs> this like red light emanating out of my bedroom window. I'm sure like, yeah, the, the neighbours thought. But so I find the red light really good. It doesn't 
activate you and just try and keep it calm. I try to start getting to bed by 9.30 um, and in bed by 10. Yeah. yeah, that's true. That's such a good summary. And one thing I'm curious about is for you um, in the morning, is it I've read that it's good to try and delay your coffee because a lot of people, the first thing they do is they'll get up and they'll drink yeah. coffee immediately. Um, so what I've heard more recently is it's good to try and wait an hour before between getting up and drinking coffee. Do you think there's any truth to that? or? Yeah, I, yeah, I definitely because um, I don't know if it's an hour because I know that the cortisol activation is high at its 30 minutes post-waking. So I suppose um, what you want to do for the day, but just um, serendipitously, by the time I get to the cafe and have coffee, it is probably close to an hour yeah. post-waking and maybe 45. And, um, yeah, and I find that that definitely suits my 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 day. I won't have coffee after 12 because yep. I, I it does take me quite a long time to get to sleep. And what like, about your um? What about your exercise routine or mindfulness or do you, do you have any kind of um like other walking any um regular exercise or mindfulness practices? I used to um do heaps and heaps of yoga. I uh, haven't done it for a while, and I, I've got a gym membership which is just ticking away without me using it because I've I've been a working on the farm, chopping wood, chainsawing, doing hard labour, or I'm travelling. I have been terrible, but I try to walk. Um, mindfulness practices um, people would be surprised to hear like no (laughs) I'm so bad at it I'm so um, I've got such a monkey mind such a busy mind I've tried I've tried to go on you know retreats and uh, (laughs) I've really tried and my brain just I'm better I'm more kinesthetic so if I want to um, de-brain myself I just do something uh, physical yeah, and or I cook like so. There's nothing better than getting in the kitchen with a glass of red and just you know belting out some exotic recipe that it takes me two hours to make. Like that's my meditation. I love it. It's so good. Yeah. Hey, Jim. Terrific conversation. I know you're busy and you've got a lot to to get on with. Um, what? Uh, how can people connect with you and learn a bit more about your wonderful work? Yeah, on LinkedIn is probably the best way. Um. So yeah, Jemma King, PhD on LinkedIn. Um, my organization is called BPA by psych analytics, but most people just actually hit me up through LinkedIn and that way you can see, you know, what I'm, what I've been up to, but, so, but before, what's, what's next for you? Oh, what's next for me? Well, um, I'm actually recovering from a, a pretty bad infection caught from childcare. So, um, yeah, so just in recovery mode at the moment, but um, really exciting times. The podcast is nearly at 300 episodes, which is really, a, a big milestone. Um, yep. There's a work and info exchange, which is fantastic. Um, yep. And then there's, I guess, uh, when we were talking about mindfulness, you made me just sort of think about um my, my partner Louise has been in Singapore for a, a couple of days and just got back and I got to have five days with my son who's um you know so young and in that stage of development and one of my um, most uh, happy periods where I'm totally locked in and mindful is when I'm just looking after my boy yeah so I try and um, do that as much as possible um, the sauna every day has been a tremendous game changer for me uh, um, so good for you, cardiovascular, yeah. your dilation. Yeah, really, really yeah, good. I think I think the red light stuff I'd like to do a little bit more of. I've heard mm-hmm. great things about it, so mm-hmm. keen to experiment with that. Um, there's the high-intensity training and getting into the green, so we'll go away over the break to some greenery, which will be really awesome just to get in um, out there walking and stuff. Yeah, um, like it drops cortisol when you look at green things. Yeah, and like I think the other thing for me is getting the gut microbiome right. So I found a really good um, um, probiotic that's sort of well-researched and works really well with me and my system. Yeah. Um, so that's good. And then I, I always wonder, one thing we haven't talked about, which maybe we can talk about another time, is sort of supplements and like, you know, is it worth taking anything? What should you take? There's just so many things that yeah. you can do. Like, I can so. talk a lot about that. And I just say eat fresh eat pure, eat well, and occasionally you might need to take some magnesium or vitamin B1 or if you've been drinking a lot or um, or omega-3s. Um, but otherwise, if you're not, you just get it from food. 
the other thing I want to say is um, CBD oil has not worked um, for me per, per se, yeah. but I do know a lot of people that it's been very helpful for. Mm. Um, I do take a medical um, cannabis uh, that has, uh, I think, one part THC to 25 parts CBD, so much oh. more CBD and a very small amount of THC, and that's a phenomenal wind-down routine at night um, that's, that's really effective for me, so I've enjoyed that. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, if I have any THC, it just sends me like, um, I, I get paranoid. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I guess alcohol for some, uh, other things for others. But uh, yeah. thank you so much for joining me. It's been a wonderful chat and um, really look forward to seeing you again soon, hey? Yeah, and good luck. Get well. And, um, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much, Jim. Take care. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.